Uh, well, welcome today. I hope you're doing well. If you're new, my name is Jonathan. I am the lead pastor here at Ridge Church, and uh, we're just glad to have you joining us. You know, when I was in university, one of the courses that I took was anthropology, which was the study of, of humans and, and of these different cultures. And, and I mean, we studied a number of different cultures and, and uh, groups, and one of them that we studied was a, a tribe in the Amazon rainforest that had literally never had contact with the outside world until somewhere around the 1960s. And in the 1960s, a group of anthropologists, a group of these scientists, made their way up the Amazon River and, and made contact with this tribe. And they spent several years among them, studying them and, and seeing how they lived. And I mean, it's a very fascinating study. And, and of course, they had some very good things in their culture, but they had some they had some hard things too. I mean, living in that, in that rainforest, there was some mal malnutrition. They didn't get enough sort of, of all the different kinds of foods they needed. There was, uh, there was obviously medical uh, and, and diseases that they didn't have a way to deal with. And there was a lot of actually infighting within the tribe and, and with other tribes. Uh, but it was this fascinating study. And, and, and at one point, one of the anthropologists, a number of years in, invited one of the young men from this tribe to travel with him down the Amazon River and back to make contact with the outside world. And I remember this sort of humorous story about uh, when they arrived uh, at the, at the, down the Amazon River and they got to the port and, and they got off, they came to a parking lot and there was the car that they were going to travel in. And he said to this young man, go get in the car and I'm going to join you in a minute. He began talking with one of his friends. And he looked back in a minute to see what was happening. And that young Yanamawa man from the tribe, he was standing looking at the car with this kind of quizzical look and then he began to crawl into it head first through the window. And then the anthropologist realized that he'd never explained that there was a door on the car that you open and slide your way in. And, and, and I've often thought, or I've sometimes thought, what it would have been like for that young man when he got back to his tribe, back in the Amazon forest after having come out and seen the outside world, how he would have explained what he saw. I mean, how would you explain a car to people who had never seen a car, who had no, no sort of framework to understand what a car is all about? I mean, you couldn't just talk about, you know, engines and, and steering wheels and taillights because they wouldn't have any context to begin to understand what that was like. I mean, in their tribe, they traveled either on foot, in paths through the forest, or on a canoe. So, so what would he have said? He said, well, like a car is like a, is like a canoe only with, with wheels on it. And instead of traveling on the water, it, it travels on these paths on the land called roads. And, and, and you don't climb into a, a car like you climb into a canoe. There's actually a, a door on the outside and you walk in and, and close the door. And, and when you're in, there's these, there's these hard things you can't put your hand through but you can see through them they're they're called windows it's really really wild and, and he says and when you want the car to go you don't you don't paddle it you you don't even push it you just push a piece of wood on the floor and when you do there's a there's a fire at the front of the canoe uh, the car and, and 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 the harder you push the pedal the, the bigger the fire burns and the faster the car moves you don't have to do anything else right I mean how, how would you describe a car in that, 
in that kind of a context. It would not be an easy thing. And, and, and that's before you got to talking about roads and traffic lights and, and interchanges and, and the fact that there's thousands of cars on the road at the same time and they all have some rules. I mean, it would have blown their mind. They'd have been like incredulous that this is what it was like out there. You know, if you had been that guy and you wanted to be successful in communicating what a car was, you would have had to, like him, find associations and, and ideas and, and maybe traditions and assumptions that are in the language already that you can use to help explain this radical new concept to them. But imagine if, for a moment, that what you had to communicate was so radically new that it actually called into question the assumptions and the, and the previous ideas and the inherited traditions of the culture that you were in. I mean, what if it was the, the thing that you wanted to, to, to describe to them was so, so radically different than anything else that, that in fact, it, it turned out to be the, the primary truth, the, the, the foundational truth on which everything else had to be seen in light of. How do you begin to explain something that in the end must be accepted as the beginning of all explanations? You see, that's the challenge that the Apostle John faces when he begins his gospel about Jesus Christ. Because you see, the realization that John and, and the other disciples came to about who Jesus was was, was so profound, so, so radical, so mind-blowing that it, it, it literally changed everything for them. And so the question that John has to sort of wrestle with at the beginning of his gospel is how, what, what kind of concepts, what kind of ideas does he grasp to try to help us understand who he has come to, to realize who Jesus is. And so here's, here's what he writes. Here's how he begins explaining to us who Jesus is at the beginning of his gospel. John chapter 1, verse 1 begins this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's an incredible opening to his account of who Jesus is. You know, you, know, uh, you remember back at a high school or, or college or university, your English teacher would say, look, if you're going to write an essay or you're going to write a paper, you have to start in the opening paragraph by giving your thesis, the point you want to make, the, the, the thing that you want to sort of prove. You, you put that up front, and then in the paragraphs that follow, you show why it is true. And when you get to your conclusion, you say, see, this is why it's true. And this is what John does here. He starts with his thesis. He says, 
this is who Jesus is. This is who we saw and experienced and were with. And, and, and he, it, it's so mind-blowing what he saw and experienced and, and who he realized he's with that he begins to grasp at these, these ideas in the culture to try to bring them together. But at the same time, it's so radically new that it, it changes everything. So let's go back and, and talk through what he says about Jesus. Here's what he says in, in verse 1. He says, in the beginning was the word. Now, now, that word, word, in Greek is the word logos. And that word had, I mean, it was freighted with ideas in, in that day. In the, in the ancient Greek world, uh, about 600 years before Jesus came on a scene, there was a philosopher named Heraclitus. And Heraclitus was the philosopher who famously said that you could never step in the same river twice. And by that he meant that you could step into a river and then when you step out, the waters pass you by and the moment you step in it again, it's actually a different river. And what he was arguing is that, that, that everything was in a state of constant change, that, that everything was kind of moving and changing all the time. And he, he began to ask, well then how is it that the whole place isn't just chaos? How is it that everything isn't just random pandemonium? And what he concluded was that the reason that there was order to the world is that there was some sort of divine reason, or he called it a divine word, a, a logos that kept it all ordered, that, that controlled all of the material world. But when he came to that conclusion, then it wasn't a far jump to say, well, if the, this divine logos controls all of matter, then it all must also control the course of history and, 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 and the thoughts of, of human beings. And this idea of the Logos took such root in Greek thinking that it was debated by philosophers for 600 years. Guys like Plato and, and Socrates and the Stoics, they all had huge conversations around this, very much like today we have conversations and debates around evolution or atomic theory, like it was well known in the culture of the day. And, and what they came to conclude was that the Logos, the, 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 the sort of universal cosmic power behind everything, was either this abstract idea of the good. The, the universal cosmic power was this idea of the good that, that kind of was behind everything. Or, or the, the universal cosmic power was some sort of God who they described as primarily being apatheia, from which we get our word apathetic. In other words, it was some sort of God or force that kind of got it going but didn't really care much after that about what happened. But to the Greeks, it was this, this abstract, this, this idea, this mystery. In fact, at one point, Plato said, uh, turned to some of his students and he says this, it may be that someday there will come from God a word, a logos, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. Isn't that something? John begins his gospel by saying, yes, that's exactly right. That's what God is doing. He sent us the Logos. And he goes on to say that Jesus, the carpenter and the rabbi from Galilee and Judea, was none other than the Logos, the Word. That, that this man was the universal cosmic power. Which is a stunning statement. 
The, the universal cosmic power is not some abstract idea of the good. It, it, it's not some, you know, apathetic God who couldn't care. No, no, no. In, rather, he said, the universal cosmic power is a he. It's a person. Which for the Greeks, I mean, that, for them it was insanity. I, impossible. But if it's true, and John is going to set out to show us that in fact this is the case, that has profound implications for how we live in, in all of life. I mean, it, it, if that's true, it radically personalized the universe. The universe was no longer this uncaring, unknowing power that just did its thing. Instead, the universe, the, the, the power behind the universe was love, exhibited by a personal God. And the idea that he would come in the flesh and, and become a human and live among us, that radically raises to the highest place possible the value of human beings. In fact, the whole concept of human rights that we hold so, so dear and so close in our society today flows in large part from the opening sentence of the book of John when he said that in the beginning was the word. And identified the word as, as being Jesus. You see, because before John made this statement, that the, the idea that the Logos was this impersonal force meant that, that the society was built on the idea of, of, of the warrior ethic, of, of strength and power and hierarchy and, and survival of the fittest. That was the, the ethic. And therefore, you could crush and take advantage of other people because that's just how it goes. But when a society takes on the idea that there is a, a, a personal God, that, that there is a, a power behind the scenes that is love, you know, that, that, that gives every individual value and equality and that develops the idea of loving the weak and caring for the needy because, because they believe in a personal universal God. The idea of human rights flows from this passage. Now, today there's a lot of people in our culture who want to keep universal rights, but dump the idea of a personal God. This is like, well, we got this, so we're good. The, the, the problem, however, is that, that you cannot sustain a genuine understanding of human rights without a belief in a personal God. And the person who pointed this out most clearly was the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche, a famous German philosopher, by no means a believer in a personal God, not close to a Christian. But nevertheless, he pointed out that if you abandon the idea of a personal God, the, the, the universal cosmic power being, being love, that Jesus is, if you abandon that idea, then, then, then there is no perspective, there is no higher standard from which to, to judge the morality of life, what is right is wrong, what, 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 what kind of rights you should have and what kind of rights you shouldn't have. And, which means that our idea of morality then is just simply based upon our own experience within our own setting and our own culture. Which raises the question, what, what, what gives me, what gives us in, in our culture, in our setting, in our own idea, the, the right to tell the rest of everyone else what should be their standards? Where, where do we get that from? Because we're all human beings. We all have the same, the same 
sort of place from which we're starting from. I mean, for example, what, why should a person look at both love and aggression, both parts of the human experience, and say love is good and aggression is bad? Well, on what basis can you say that kind of thing? Nietzsche said, look, if, there, if there's no personal God, there's no higher standard to make decisions from. In fact, here's what he writes, judgments, value judgments concerning life for or against can in the last resort never be true. To hold the human beings are the product of nothing more than, than the evolutionary progress, uh, sorry, the evolutionary process of the strong eating the weak, but then to insist that nevertheless, Every person has human dignity to be honored. That's just a huge leap of faith and just is incoherent as a belief system. It's not sustainable. When John declared that Jesus was the Word, he profoundly changed the human conception of the universe and the implications of this statement roll into our world even this day. Who is Jesus? Here's the first thing that John says. Jesus is the universal cosmic power. But then here's what he says next about Jesus. He says, again, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that statement seems deceptively simple, and yet it holds in it, in it two ideas that are seemingly incompatible. You know, we say that a person is, or a person is with someone. But now John says that Jesus is both with God and is God. And in that simple line, in that simple line, John redefines the definition of God. I mean, in, in that statement, John blows up the concept of God in a, in a way that caused the people in that day to stumble and to struggle, and that still causes people to stumble and struggle today. Because here he introduces the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. The idea that God is one, but that he is also three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus that he's talking about here, and later God the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle John in, the, in this gospel is going to, to elaborate on that in a number of ways as we look through it. But the fact of the matter is, is that right here, right now, in the opening sentence, John redefines the definition of of who God is. And here's what he says about Jesus. That Jesus is God. The man, the, the, the carpenter, the rabbi that they, they lived with and ate with and, and, and listened to teach, they said, the one that they could reach out and touch, they said, this man was and is God. It's a profound statement. And then he goes on, to say this about Jesus. In verse 2 he says, He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Huh. You know, a, a couple months ago, if you were reading the news, came out that the, the James Webb Space Telescope began to send back these images the, 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 of, of outer space. The James Webb Space Telescope took 30 years to build, cost $10 billion, and it is now about 1.5 million kilometers away from the Earth. And just recently, it began to send back these images <clears throat> that we've never seen before. Here's one of the pictures that I want to that's come back. I want to show you. This is the called the Carina Nebula, and uh, 
And uh, this is not a painting. This is a picture from millions of miles out in space. And it, it comes from this intense ultraviolet radiation and stellar winds that are created by these supermassive, incredibly hot young stars in this region of the universe. And, and it's just, I mean, it's spectacular, isn't it? Ah, I'm not a big, you know, I don't do a lot of astronomy stuff, but I don't know how you can, can really dig into astronomy and not be left with a very clear conclusion that, that all of this can only be explained by a God who is so powerful and so magnificent. I mean, I see a picture like this, makes me want to worship. But, but I just show you this because it's a great, I mean, what an incredible photo from outer space. The picture that I really want to show you is this one. Here, here it is, it's called uh, Deep Images. It's one of the very first pictures that came back. And the, and the large white lights that you can see there, the, those are the stars in our Milky Way. But what's fascinating is the smaller dots in between those large white lights. Each of those dots is not a star. Each of those dots is another galaxy. And the ones that are fuzzy are galaxies that are, that are so far out that the light is sort of fuzzy by the time it gets to the telescope. And, and the, the most amazing thing about this picture of the universe is that it covers the, a, a, a patch of the sky about as big as a grain of rice if you were to hold it up at arm's length. I mean, that's how many stars are out there. Hundreds of, of millions, of billions of stars in, in, in that much of a patch of the sky. Unbelievable, incredible. I mean, mind-blowing. And here's what John says about Jesus. He created it. He, he created all of it. There is not one star in the entire universe that God, through Jesus, did not personally create. And on this planet, on this little speck of dust in the universe... There is not one thing that God, through Jesus, didn't create. Not, not, not one huge, not, not from the biggest mammal on the land to the giantest whale in the water to, to us to the tiniest single-celled amoeba. John says every single one of those things was created through Jesus. He says this is who Jesus is. Again, we ate and drank with him. We laughed and told jokes with him. We watched him heal Jesus. And that's who Jesus is. Who is he? Jesus is the creator of the universe. And then he goes on to say this. In him was life. In verse 4 he says, in him was life. Do you know, I, I just looked this up, do you know that 65% of your body is oxygen? Which makes me wonder why I'm not floating, if that's the case. But Nevertheless, 65% is oxygen. 10% is hydrogen, which combined with the oxygen makes for water. 3.5% of our body is nitrogen, which means that pretty much the rest of it, about 19% of it, is carbon. In other words, if you took me and burned my body up, about 19% of me would be left. I think I worked it out. About 30 pounds of me is really all that there is to me, dust and ashes. You know, if you took those things, if you took those percentages of, of oxygen and, and uh, hydrogen and nitrogen and carbon, and you mixed it all in a bowl, you covered it over and you left it for a week and you came back, <clears throat> took the cover off, there wouldn't be no, no human being there. E even if you shaped it into a form of a human being and left it for a month, come back, it still wouldn't be a human being. 
Life is something that comes from outside of us. Life is something that is a gift to us, that is, that is breathed into us. And John says, life, all of life, the life that you have, the, the thing that sustains you and every breath that you have, you know what that is? It's Jesus. That's who Jesus is. <clears throat> Which means that if you have life, even if you don't acknowledge it, in some way you're in a relationship with Jesus. <clears throat> the, 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 to have life is to relate to Jesus as the source of all of life. So who is Jesus? Here's the fourth thing that John says. Jesus is the source of life. And then he goes on to say this. And the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now John says that Jesus is the light. I mean, he keeps looking for all these ways to try to help us understand the fullness of who Jesus is. And you know what light is about, right? I mean, light, of course, is necessary to see properly. It is to see clearly, to see fully. Every Christmas, every Christmas in my home, my job is to go and to drag out all the Christmas decorations from wherever we stuffed them last year. And uh, for a number of years in one of the houses we lived, that was under the stairs. And I just dreaded that job. There was, there was no lights under the stairs, and so I took this tiny little flashlight in there and hardly did anything, and I'm groping around in there trying to grab these things. Inevitably, every year I would bang my head on the, on the stairs above me. I would say words that were not very Christmassy. By the time I dragged that stuff out, I was in no mood for Christmas. And all my family would be like, oh, yay, it's Christmas. Uh, what's the matter with you, Mr. Grumpy Pants? Oh, stay away from Grinch over there, right? But the, the problem was I was fumbling around in the dark. And it's not easy in the dark, right? In the dark, all you see is shadows and and shapes and forms but when the light comes i mean then you can see clearly and john says if you want to see the way life the way it truly is if if you want to know what life is truly meant to be the way to do it is to see life in the light of jesus he's the light of the world you know if you want to see clearly who you are if you want to understand Clearly what's going on in the world around you. If you want to see the path that you should take and be aware of the pitfalls that lie in the way, the way that you do that, John says, is to follow Jesus. Because he is the light of the world. And it doesn't matter how much darkness is out there, nothing will overcome the light of Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's the light. And then he goes on to say this. There's a man sent from God whose name was John, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light. Now, the Apostle John, after making all these incredible, sweeping statements about who Jesus is, now suddenly he gets down to this guy named John. Now, he's not talking about himself. He's talking about John the Baptist. Apparently, if your name is John, there's a lot of other people named John, and you spend a lot of time explaining that you're not that John, you're this John. And but in this case, he's talking about John the Baptist. And, and John the Baptist, he was the Billy Graham of that day. Everyone knew who he was. And, and the, what the Apostle John is doing in these opening lines is that he's anchoring all of this vastness, all of the majesty and the grandeur and the glory and the, and the beauty of Jesus. He's, he's anchored, anchoring it in a sp particular place and time. He's anchoring it in an era. You know, last week the, 
the Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, died, which brings the era of her reign to an end. By, by the way, I don't know if you knew this, but the Queen had a very deep and abiding faith in Jesus. There is no question that today she stands before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and, and she lays down her crown and says, Jesus, I served you so faithfully. And I bet he's saying, well done, good and faithful servant. But, but the queen defines an era. You can place an event in a historical time frame by saying it happened during the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. And that's what John is doing here about Jesus. He's saying this, that, that Jesus came during the time of, of John the Baptist. Jesus was a real historical person grounded in that area. He's not just an abstract philosophical idea. He's not something that is made up. Here's the, here's the sixth thing that Jesus or that John says about Jesus. That he was a real historical person rooted in a particular place and time. So this, this is John's thesis statement. This is what he sets out to communicate to us at the very beginning of his gospel. That Jesus was a real historical person rooted in a particular place and time, but that from the beginning, from, from, from before time and space began, he has always been the universal cosmic power. That he is in fact God himself. The, the one who created every single thing, the, the source of life and the light by which to live all of life. Now that's a serious thesis statement. I mean, that, that, that is the most profound statement ever made by anyone about another human being in all of history. And John says, that's who Jesus is. And now John tells us how people responded to Jesus. Here's, here's what he says, verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of, the man, of man, but of God. John says Jesus came into the world, into the flesh. He was, he was all of these things. And yet there were so many people who could not accept it. They, they, they couldn't wrap their mind around it. And frankly, you have to understand, you can understand that because, I mean, what John says about Jesus here in this opening lines are amazing statements. You can understand why people would struggle with it. But, but that doesn't mean it isn't true, only that they had troubles accepting it. I mean, it's like that young Yanomawa man when he went back to his tribe. I mean, he would have told them not only about cars, but about high rises that were made out of steel and glass. About, about giant freighter ships that weighed hundreds of tons and yet floated on the water. Uh, about, about these big metal machines called airplanes that literally floated through the air with people inside of them. About a thing called a telephone where people could literally talk to people hundreds of miles away just by talking into this machine. About about medicine and hospitals and maybe about sushi and I mean about a million other things, right? And a bunch of them would have listened to him and said, that's ridiculous. No way. Not a chance. That, that people could float through the air from one place to another on this thing called 
on this machine that's made out of metal. We've never even seen metal. No, no way. Either you're lying to make yourself a big shot or, 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 or somebody tricked you. Maybe they drugged you. Maybe it was all a hallucination. But there is no way that that could be because we have lived here for thousands of years and we've never seen anything like that. Impossible. And he would have said, yeah, but, but you know me. I'm not making this stuff up. I'm one of you. I'm a witness to what I've seen. And if you would just listen to me, I mean, there's stuff there that we could bring here that would make our lives so much better. And there'd be a bunch of people say, no, no way. But there would have other, been others who say, I know this guy. And I find the things that he says kind of incredulous, but at the same time exciting. Like, what if it's true? What, 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 if, what if all of this actually is there and we can have it? It would change our lives. And they would believe him. And at one point, they'd have the opportunity to go and have the contact with the outside world. And they might bring back medicine or, or better food or, or vitamins. And it would change the lives of the people in their community. That's what John is talking about. The, the gospel that he writes basically says this. Come and see. Come and see for yourself what I saw. Who Jesus is. And there are those who, 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 who couldn't see it, even though he was testifying to them. And, and they knew him and, 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 and trusted him. But there were others who believed. And, and to believe on Jesus is more than to simply intellectually assent to these things. Yes, Jesus was the word. He was the guy. He's got his, to simply assent to that and not have it change your life means that you don't actually intellectually even get it. Because if you actually believe that this is true, it changes everything about how you see the world, about how you live your life, about why you live your life. Everything changes if you actually believe what John says here about who Jesus is. And John says, for those who do believe, God will come into their life and do a profound work in their life. He, he gives them the right to become children of God with all of the, the privileges and responsibilities that go with that. When that happens, when that happens, when you give your life to Jesus, you don't meet some stranger for the first time. Rather, you meet the one who has called you and, and prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Listen, if you want to believe in Jesus, if, if you want to know him the way John knows him here, you can do that today. It's simply a matter of, of, of putting your trust in him of submitting your life to him, of, of believing what John says here and, says, and, and repenting and saying, God, if this is who you are, if the cosmic power behind the universe is love and not just an evolutionary machine that would grind me up and spit me out, if that's who you are, God, I want you in my life. And you simply say a prayer. You just say, God, you, you could talk quietly or out loud. You say, God, I, I, I want to give myself to Jesus. I, I want to give myself to you. I confess that I have not followed you, that I'm a sinner, but I, I want to put my trust in you. I want to accept what Jesus did to, to pay the price for my rebellion against you, and I'm going to follow you. It doesn't have to be exactly that, but something like that. And if you say that, God will come into your life. Jesus will enter into your, your world, and he will change your life. And for those of you who already have, I mean, this, this should cause you to worship it should cause you to lift your hearts to him and say, what an amazing person. 
What an amazing God that you would come and become one of us. Would you join me? Would you bow your heads? Let's, let's pray together. Oh God, what a, what a profound, what a profound introduction to who Jesus is. God, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that, that he came in the flesh. Oh, that he would humble himself, that he would become so humble to, to become one of us. And yet in so doing that he would raise us, our values so high. God, sometimes it's just hard to, to truly grasp how great and how majestic and how awesome Jesus is. And yet on this day, we again, we humble ourselves, we bow ourselves before you, we say, we give ourselves to follow after him. We give our lives to him. We trust him for the, for the good things in our life and we trust him in the hard things that come in our life because of who he is. And so God, on this day, on this day again, we give our lives to you and we commit to follow after Jesus. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, thank you for coming and, and joining us today. I want to send you out with these words from the book of Jude. Here's what he says at the very end. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Oh, Amen. Oh, God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.